Chapter Eleven of Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gabby Cowan. Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today by haji a brown chapter eleven after the storm under the changed conditions in which the french were now living they began to find time hanging heavily on their hands so they turned their attention to the task of providing occupation for their leisure hours and as a further step in the realization of this desirable object built themselves an assembly room this and some other projects kept them busy for some weeks and helped to heal the bitterness that the revolt had created and like the egyptians if not ready to bury the past altogether they were willing enough to let it lie in oblivion and largely influenced by the fact that the destruction of the fleet had left them locked in the country with no very hopeful possibility of their being soon able to receive help from france they set themselves to get on with the people as well as might be and included in their schemes some intended at once to please and gratify the kindness and impress them with a sense of the superiority of the french among the other devices that it was thought could not fail to serve these ends and win general applause was the construction of a montgolfier balloon this having been successfully accomplished the public were invited to come and see a wonderful contrivance by which the french were able to communicate with far-off lands and thus if need should arise seek and obtain help from their native country or elsewhere such an announcement naturally brought the egyptians who are always curious to see and inspect novelties of all kinds in crowds to the esbekieh on the day appointed for the ascent fortune however was not generous to the french and though the balloon was a success in all things that skill could command an adverse and indifferent wind left it loitering in sight until the moment of its collapse arrived and it sank ignominiously to earth to the great scorn of the people who derisively styled it a big kite and compared it to the kites that the boys of egypt had long been wont to amuse themselves with the failure was a sad blow to the french who had hoped to see the balloon float majestically away and disappear in the north as though it were indeed bound for paris a worthier and more successful enterprise that the french engaged in was the opening of a public library in the district to the south of the town still known as the nashrie of this cavarti who is not sparing in his ridicule of the balloon gives an enthusiastic description and records with the most unstinted appreciation his sense of the high courtesy with which the french received all visitors 
he himself went often and tells us not only of the delight with which he enjoyed his wonders but of the pleasures afforded by the welcome offered to all visitors and especially to those who showed an interest in or knowledge of the sciences for their inspection of all the treasures of the place were freely produced and all help given them to understand the object and worth of what they were shown there were many things in the library that the egyptians visitors could thoroughly appreciate rare oriental manuscripts maps and atlases of all parts of the world illustrated volumes astronomical and other scientific diagrams and philological works for all these as well as for the french savants who so freely and liberally put their time and knowledge at the service of their guests gavarti has unstinted praise and admiration even more successful than the library from the popular point of view was the laboratory that the french threw open to all comers popular science was then in its infancy the chemistry of today was altogether unknown and undreamt of electricity was in its early babyhood even the telegraph being yet to come steam was an unharnessed giant gas photography and a host of things that are nowadays among the most commonplace of our surroundings were unknown not only in egypt but in europe and by the nile where art and science once flourished the little knowledge that still survived was the inheritance and privilege of the ulema and was sadly cramped and debased by the false theology that had elevated religious pedantry above all other knowledge or desire it is no wonder therefore that the french were able to astonish their guests beyond measure by showing them a host of those experiments in natural science that in our own boyhood days we delighted in when presented to us as the magic of chemistry such as the production of a solid by mixing of two liquids the marvels of electricity as then known were also displayed and as gavarty says with his customary candor other wonders that intelligence like ours could neither understand nor explain all the visitors to the library and laboratory were not of course as intelligent or appreciative as the sheikh gavarty and some of the few historians who condescend to mention things unconnected with the battles and bloodshed that is their proper subject record with glee as a fitting illustration of the native mind the story of the sheikh who having beheld with oriental stolidity all the marvels the french could show him asked whether the science of europe was equal to the task of enabling him to be present in two places at once and being assured that it could not expressed his contempt for such lamentably imperfect science that the incident really occurred there is no reason to doubt but the sheikh's attitude was not such a childishly absurd one as our friends the historians would wish us to believe to understand it we must go back to the time and the place though even from the present we may gain a hint 
not long since an italian boy showed me a little booklet that had been given to him by his teacher a catholic priest it was a short history of the life of a saint and recorded how a mule had gone on its knees out of respect for the host the book had a printed imprimatur of his holiness the late pope i asked the boy if he really believed the story and he replied why not why not indeed luther not only believed in the devil but saw him and threw his ink bottle at him notwithstanding which i though not a christian in any sense most firmly believe in luther and hold him as one far beyond the world's great hero bonaparte in all that constitutes true greatness i can therefore quite understand how a pious sheikh in cairo in the year of grace seventeen ninety nine could believe in the possibility of a man being by the aid of lawful or unlawful arts and sciences both here and there at the same time for to him as to luther belief in the supernatural made all things possible and just as luther had a hundred hearsay traditions of the pious and godly to justify his interpretation of the hallucination produced by an overworked brain so the sheikh had not only traditions but sworn testimony of many eye-witnesses to the possibility of the impossibility in which he thus expressed his belief and as it held in the closing days of the eighteenth century so in these the early years of the twentieth the church of rome still holds as heretic whoever disputes the truth of the worshipping mule and in the east not only are miracles firmly believed in but do actually in a sense take place a night's march from hudeida up in the hills of yemen there was in the seventies of the last century a certain saint who held open court for all who came and it was the tradition and as i can testify the verity of the place that when his guests sat down to meals the more they ate the more was left i have seen this miracle as it was and perhaps still is commonly accounted repeated not once but again and again during my stay and this same state was held by all the populace of hodeida which in those days did not number a single christian among its residents to have on many occasions attended the public prayers in hodeida and those in sanana at one and the same time the saint grown old and bedridden when i saw him was a fine old arab and though speaking with difficulty asked me a few intelligent questions about india and england hence as it seems to me having abundance of such evidence before him and having a boundless faith in the omnipotence of the creator and of his regard for the doings of his people the mocking shake in the french laboratory was in fact ridiculing not french science but french infidelity in the cairo of to-day there are but few who have such simple honest faith as the old shake 
whether on the whole cairo or its people are much the better of the change is a question not altogether so beyond discussion as my reader probably thinks but whether the old sheikh was serious or ironical in his question it is quite certain that the sheikh gabarty was perfectly serious in his comments and in the records of these things that he has left us there is much to guide us in forming an idea of the egyptian of the period for though he was one of the learned he was essentially one of the people and like them when under no special restraint accustomed to speak his mind clearly and without any other bias than the impulse of the moment born in cairo in the year seventeen fifty four he was like sayed mahomed kerim the governor of alexandria of arab origin and like him though preserving much of the arab in his nature essentially an egyptian originally from seila on the african coast of the gulf of aden his family had been settled in egypt for seven generations and had taken the name Givarti, or as it is pronounced in egypt gavarti from their first home Gibart, being one of the names by which seila is still known claiming descent from the family of abu talib that uncle of the prophet of islam who though unconverted to the fate of his nephew accorded him his protection and sympathy in the days when he so sorely needed a friend the gabarty family had in egypt been scarcely less famous for its origin than for its piety learning and wealth sheikh ali the great-grandfather of the sheikh abdu rahman gabarty the historian of whom i am writing attained full honours as a saint and in the time of bonaparte his tomb at edfu was still a place of pilgrimage for the pious not only of egypt but of arabia and abyssinia and other lands of islam another notable member of the family was the sheikh abdu rahman's father a man of great learning a deeply read student of all the sciences and branches of learning then cultivated in egypt a noted bibliophile and the author of many works covering a wide range of subjects the standard-bearer of knowledge and moon of islam and its followers are some of the phrases in which his son with filial piety describes him and it is certain that considering his time and place he was not unworthy of them recognized by the ulema as the most accomplished and brilliant scholar of the day in private life he was beloved for his affability generosity and public spirit the latter being evidenced by among other things his establishing in his own house a lending library which he placed at the free disposal of all students as an author he produced a long list of works chiefly of controversial character but some of an eminently practical nature such as his guide to the ceremonies of the pilgrimage to mecca nor was he without inventive skill an instrument for ascertaining the kibla or point to which all moslems are bound to turn when praying and a circular calendar 
covering a long period of time and supplying corresponding dates for a number of different eras such as the muslim coptic and greek being among the more noteworthy he was also a great amateur of sundials and constructed many of various types his scientific knowledge public spirit and practical nature were all combined to enable him to carry out single-handed a reform in the weights and measures of the cairo markets abdul rahman the historian was a worthy son of this distinguished man like him a great scholar though less broad in his reading and acute thinker indefatigable worker and earnest and conscientious follower of his religion and yet free as his history proves of all fanatism and bigotry independent in spirit truthful and candid in speech and writing yet withal courteous and generous in his intercourse with others it was but natural that he should succeed his father as one of the foremost of the sheikhs of the azhar university and that he should have been one of the men chosen to form the dewan when bonaparte asked for the names of the leading men such being the man and his origin it is not difficult to understand how bitter to him must have been the events that had followed the arrival of the french but he records the history of the time with the state reserve of the father of history setting down the good and the bad with equal fidelity neither concealing the truth as he saw it nor speaking aught in malice and through his story of the french occupation one can see how greatly his heart rebelled against it but none the less he never grudges the invaders his admiration when they could win it as in the case of the library and the laboratory though he could when he would be sarcastic enough as when laughing at the fiasco of the balloon and is capable of righteous indignation not only against the french but also against the moslems who sinned against that which he held to be the laws of right and truth so while he more than hints his belief that many of the reforms were but excuses for the collection of taxes he readily admits the utility of the registration of births marriages and deaths sees no harm in the wearing of the cockade and admits the benefits of disinfection and quarantine his book is therefore what he never intended it to be a wonderful picture of the man himself as well as it is that which he intended it to be a full and above all else a truthful account of the events of his time and it is even more than this for it is to those who know something of the east and its peoples a valuable guide to the character of the egyptians and without any intention of his part or indeed any idea that he is touching such a subject he is constantly showing us how and why the french failed to gain the goodwill or friendship of the people and through it all in the gathering of the storm as in its burst and in the days of dire grief that followed it we see the man himself placid and calm with unfaltering though aching heart going steadily on maintaining his daily life as much as might be unchanged 
ever in fear and yet never in fear ever in fear that the morrow might bring some new trouble or vexation never in fear but that come what might in the end all must be well for after all was not all this flood of affliction let loose on the country that god might accomplish his decrees and as gabarty thought of all these things so in a measure thought all the egyptians much as they enjoy peace comfort society and all the good things of this life they all sit in the top of diogenes and mock at the power of the grandeur of the great robert of sicily in his magnificent attire may be a very gorgeous spectacle but they are quite prepared to see him to-morrow or the day after running bareheaded and bedspread with mire and so when bonaparte who not having yet heard the dismal droning of st helena's surges by no means shared such silly ideas issued his decrees and warned the people of the certain destruction that was to overtake all who dared oppose him they though they held their tongues felt inclined to reply as did akbar the great of india's prisoner could it not be well to say with god's permission and of what avail all this bloodshed and rapine what madness and utter folly all this tumultuous turbulence of base and bonapartes what could they gain by it did they forget the inedible hour were there no graves awaiting them wherein they would lie and rot while others no wiser than they could be furiously fighting over the heritage they had left and also for smaller things why worry and fret about these reforms they may be good and beneficial in their way but peace and quiet were better and if the french really desired reforms why not give the people the reforms they did really long for to live in peace and quiet and be left to seek their own welfare in their own manner these were things to be sought after and if possible attain things worth some little sacrifice give them this and leave them free to enjoy their lives as they would and they would pay willingly enough whatever reasonable taxes you might desire even though this pressed a little heavily upon them and these being the ideals of the egyptians it should be easy for the reader to see that after all for them the french as rulers of the land were scarcely as desirable as the base instead of giving the people liberty this was just what they took from them under the french they felt all the horror that convicts have told us they have felt in english and other jails at the knowledge that they were always under restraint and observation the french complained that the egyptians were ungrateful but it is not easy for a man to be grateful for a benefit of which he is unconscious that the french were in many things their superiors the egyptians could plainly see that they were far beyond them in the arts and sciences and manufactures that their ideas of governing and administering the town and country were better than those of the turks or mamalukes all these were things that the egyptians could and did admit 
but they could not and would not admit that the benefit to be derived from this was worth anything like the price the french asked them to pay from the days of the pharaohs they had carried their bricks and their mortar in huts on their heads or on their shoulders the french wheelbarrows were ingenious and useful things and there was no reason why the egyptians should not avail themselves of these or any other of the endless conveniences that they were now seeing for the first time provided that the employment of these things was not to be made a burden and that they were employed to lighten and not to increase the laborer's task and as it was so in higher things and among the higher classes it was good to register the births and deaths was it not the custom of the arabs themselves from the very earliest days but it was not good to tie people down to making their records in a certain way at a certain time at a certain place or to put them under pains and penalties for any failure in conforming to the further some rules the french had laid down with respect to such matters it was thus that gavarti and his countrymen reasoned then and it is thus that the egyptian still reasons and while they so reasoned and so reasoned it was and is impossible for the european and the egyptian to coalesce socially and politically the ultimate aim of the french and of the egyptians was one and the same thing the happiness of the people but their conceptions of happiness were radically distinct nor were their ideas as to the means whereby happiness was to be attained less irreconcilable throughout the world turn where we will we find all men engaged in the same pursuit carrying on the same struggle the silly patted fools lounging at the bars of london and the hard-handed laborer toiling at his daily work the salvation army lass tending the sick and poor and the buddhist fanatic burning himself alive these and the million types that range between these streams these are all seeking the same goal struggling each in his or her own way for the attainment of the same end the realization of their own ideal of happiness i have in an earlier chapter tried to show why the egyptian and the english characters are of necessity so different and in doing that i have to some extent at least shown why the french and the egyptians were so opposed in their valuation of the reforms that bonaparte was so assiduous in introducing that bonaparte cared the value of a brass farthing for the welfare of egypt or the happiness of the egyptians is simple inconceivable but that he really and earnestly desired to see both these things realized is certain had an overwhelming inundation swept egypt and the egyptians into the sea bonaparte's chief regret would have been that he had neither ships nor men with which to avail himself of this new and most convenient route to india but so long as their existence was conducive or might possibly be made conducive to his own interest he certainly desired that the country should prosper that he might reap the benefit 
and that the people should be happy or at least content so that he need not waste his resources in combating or providing against hostility on their part this is the debt and this only that egypt owes to the goodwill of bonaparte in gabarty's picture of the library and the laboratory we find frenchmen of a very different type to the corsican to these men and to others that were yet to come egypt owes much had there been nothing to counteract their influence egypt could indeed have had reason to bless the day the french arrived for their patient courteous kindly enthusiasm was just what was needed to give the people a real and lasting impulse towards better things and as we see the pettiness and mean ambitions of bonaparte forever blocking these the only true road to the ends he desired we cannot but feel that once in the country the best thing he ever did for it was to take himself out of it as he did stealing away like a thief in the night deserting the army that had served him faithfully and well utterly reckless of the fate that might await them that indeed was good for egypt but the frenchmen who would and could have benefited the country had many difficulties to overcome had they once been in a position to set themselves seriously to the task they would have wrought much good but they were forced to act as if the happiness of egypt was to be attained by casting its social and political conditions in the mould of the french republic to the egyptian not yet being able to fully comprehend the spirit of these men and seeing nothing in the french occupation but the worries and vexations with which the tyranny of bonaparte overwhelmed them the only happiness the french could offer them was to leave them alone their ideals and the french were altogether different and never could agree the egyptian could see this but the french could not and least of all bonaparte what was possible was that the egyptians should learn much and benefit much from french civilization and its adaptation to the needs and circumstances of the country and its people this and nothing more but bonaparte was of all men the least capable of seeing such a fact as this and so he kept stretching the egyptians on a procrustean bed of reform and was wrought that they did not enjoy the experience yet in the daily life of the people around him if he could but have seen it as it was and not simply as it appeared to him to be there were ample facts to guide him in the framing of a policy that might have attracted and so gained as far as was possible for him to gain it the good will of the population scattered here and there in and out of the city were the ruined palaces and mouldering mosques of the caliphs and the sultans of the past and of the builders the people knew little more than their names if so much and there were tombs of men often of the humblest rank to which the passer-by turned for a moment to pray with that indifference to the true teaching of his religion and boundless faith in his own superstitions that is characteristic of the lower classes in the country 
a most significant fact this survival of the unfittest for in truth this is the right adjective to apply to most of these saints of great popularity in egypt there were indeed among these men like the sheikh gabarti of whom i have spoken who were not unworthy of reverent remembrance but these would have been the first to forbid the use of prayers to instead of those for the dead but the egyptian like most men needs a hero to worship in some form or other and since he could not by any possible stretch of the imagination bring himself to look upon the caliphs and sultans and beys of the past who should have abundantly supplied his need as worthy of his reverence he was in a measure compelled to accept such paltry makeshift heroes as his saints this he endowed with all the virtues that he would have fain seen the living rulers of the land practice and adding an abundance of miracles to their credit treated them as the hidden of all did and as the hindus of to-day still do their gods and goddesses exalted them into guardian deities for the locality in which they had lived or were buried folly and superstition and for the moslem rank heresy and infidelity yet most significant and instructive for those who could understand the people thus wandering from the right way most significant for after all people however stupid and silly do not wander without some reason without some object to attract them bonaparte could not understand this and not only could he not understand it but he did precisely the same thing himself in dealing with the people like mr wortley wiseman he and they were content to do as other people did without troubling to consider whether there were not a better way to be found as for the people they enjoyed their bypad as christian did his until he awoke to find himself in the clutches of giant despair but bonaparte could get no further than to wonder at the wholly unprofitable roughness of the path he had chosen and the utter unwillingness of the people to cross the stile and follow his way had he stopped to ask what were the chief virtues with which the people endowed their heroes he would have found that first and so far first that all the rest came lagging almost out of sight was that wondrous virtue so esteemed throughout all the east and to which the catholic church lends its applauding patronage utter contempt and indifference to the things of this world the naked imbecile wandering among the tombs is to the eastern not a man possessed with a devil but el muravik el muravik the blessed the man who god has blessed by freeing his mind from all the cares and worries of this life astounding ignorance degrading superstition that my dear reader is no doubt how you see it that is how bonaparte saw it and it may surprise you to hear that it is how gabarti the historian saw it and i will follow such high authorities so far as to admit that seeing such things as you do and they did only darkly and as through a glass your view is a very correct one 
but if the people does err there is a reason a reason that you will never discover so long as you wrap yourself up in your superior intelligence and will not stoop to learn from the facts you so chiefly criticize not that the solution of this mystery is either recondite or difficult of attainment far from that if i could present to your inspection two maps of the world one whereon was marked by varying depths of color those parts of the world wherein the bulk of the people find life most burdensome and least attractive and the other mark in the same way and in the same colors to show where this reverence for the imbecile and other kindred follies are most rife you would say but the two maps are the same and you would be correct for this lowest of all superstition is but the expression of the hopeless helpless longing for freedom from care that comes to those whose lives are one long burden unaided and unrelieved by strength of mind or healthy training of what used to appeal to such with the arguments that might stir the blood and stimulate the thoughts of the frenchman be he chatella or son surely so long as bonaparte and the french could not see these things neither he nor they could do much to live or elevate the people or to render their lives happy nor if the lower classes were thus effectually shut out from french influence were the better informed much less widely separated from them children fighting for garden plots and brass-headed nails ruskin might have written that parable to illustrate the aspect which french ambitions offered to the ulima garden plots and brass-headed nails things useful and desirable in themselves but not worth fighting for vanity of vanities all is vanity that is for ever the song of the ulima and though with pope they hold that not a vanity is given in vain yet they will not admit that any given vanity is worth fighting for they are ready enough to turn aside in vanity fair and to enjoy its vanity but they never forget that they are vanities as the old arabic has it this world is a place of going not a place of staying why then toil and moil for mere vanities that we must leave behind us if we labor at all let it be for treasures not vanities treasures that once they are ours they are ours for all time and all eternity treasures that all the armies of all the bonapartes and sultans and base in the world cannot rob us of deeds of charity and deeds of piety kindly words and kindly acts mercy and forgiveness this is the philosophy of the egyptian and of the eastern as it is that of christ himself thou shalt love the lord thy god and thy neighbor as thyself christian clergymen of all denominations teach it and preach it christian citizens profess it christian civilization applauds and ignores it that most insignificant looking of letters the greek iota was sufficient to split the christian church in twine 
but this philosophy has never caused a breath or whisper of dissent or discord the christian priest the muslim sheikh the brahman guru the buddhist lama all agreed in this in the dogma though not all in its application the eastern takes it very literally the european looks upon it as a pretty ideal good to be spoken of now and then but having nothing whatever to do with the realities of actual life when Sploxon of undershot whom carlyle places on a level with the choctaw indians with as i think scant justice to the choctaw whose ideal is or rather was a higher one that Ploxon's, seeing that Ploxon has no higher ideal than his own individual interests whereas the choctaw always had the honour of his tribe in mind and would if need be die for that very unsubstantial figment whence it is evident that the choctaw had in reality advanced towards the highest real civilization a full stage further than has Ploxon for all true civilization is in spite of certain philosophers opinions the negation of individualism the very lowest type of humanity is the man thinking acting only for himself like the brutes of the forest knowing no ambition no need beyond his own individual wants or wishes such men as these are only possible in a highly civilized community and will be found most abundantly in the most civilized and among the highest or at least the wealthiest classes of these among mere savages by a merciful provision of nature such men wage such ruthless war with each other that it is well-nigh impossible for two to survive but if these men exist in and are a product of civilization it is only as the scum floating on the surface of the molten metal as base as mean and worthless as the dregs that lie at its bottom as to the egyptian neither a ploxon nor yet a choctaw he is rather to be compared to poor old abbot hugo or some of his patient faithful monks striving in a certain halting faltering wholly incompetent and yet withal more or less earnest way to do right very prone like christian himself to be tempted over the stile into the pleasant-looking byways of the road and to start back at the sight of the lions at mr interpreter's house and yet like faithful resolute enough to stand unabashed in the pillories of vanity fair and to face undaunted the terrors of the valley of the shadow how could such men as these fall down and worship the golden calf of the french republic how could the french whose farthest horizon was no further off than the short limits of the average duration of life comprehend the egyptian the first brief fraternizing of the two peoples had been as the momentary intermixing of water and oil suddenly thrown into a common receptacle thereafter their inherent mutual repugnance inevitably drove them apart and in the calm that followed the riot the separation became daily more and more complete 
hence it was that gavarti and all his kind while they could admire and wonder at the marvels the french showed them and could and did appreciate much of the law order and good discipline they obeyed yet weighing these things in the balance of man's relations to the infinite as they conceived this to be rejected them it is not to be supposed that the egyptians measured in any such way as i have done the difference between themselves and the french or that they thought of or were even aware of the philosophy by which they were guided they simply look upon the french from a very simple practical everyday point of view first as usurping foreigners and secondly as men with a wholly unaccountable extraordinary and irrational conception of life and its needs a people showing a strange indifference to that oldest and most indisputable of all truths that man is mortal and who giving all their thoughts and energies to vain theories and ambitions were hopelessly bewildered and befogged by their own cleverness madly bartering through happiness from a brilliant but wordless imitation a people the more mad and the more foolish that there was no need for them to make such an unprofitable trade for in the french conception of civilization and happiness there was little if anything absolutely irreconcilable with the egyptian view there was no reason why men should not profit to the utmost from all the arts sciences knowledge or progress of any kind but these things should be sought as the complement and completion of better things and not as the ultimate good and they could be sought much better if the people were not worried by the endless forms and formalities needless rules and regulations and idly and burdensome restraints the french put upon them this was and is the egyptian's ideal of civilization not unlike that of carlyle and ruskin civilization as a means not as an end an ideal of which we at home seem at last to be getting a faint glimmering perception as evidenced by the victory of the living wage verity over the supply and demand falsity a victory whereby english civilization has been advanced a long step towards the egyptian and islamic ideal for which the rabbit brained smart set and other puerilities and senilities have so much contempt unfortunately the egyptian fails to see the duty that his ideal imposes upon him and thus only too well justifies the criticisms of those who take the imperfections of the man as those of his ideals they did not and they as yet do not clearly see that however high and noble a man's ideal may be it is useless and vain unless it be converted into action the best of seed kept in a glass case for men to admire is but an unprofitable perfection that it may be prolific beneficial to men it is needful to take it from its case and plant it in the soul to grow so with our ideals 
however perfect however beautiful they are worthless unless planted in the soil of that strenuous effort president roosevelt has so rightly lauded perhaps some day when englishmen in general begin to see these things more clearly when we begin to understand that after all the swelling of the budget and the filling of our individual pockets are not the highest nor indeed high aims at all when we can openly accept and act upon the creed of burns that the rank is but the guinea's stamp then perhaps we may be able to help the egyptian also to a higher and purer conception of true civilization at present not possessing that article it is scarcely possible for us to transfer it or to share it with the egyptian or any one else end of chapter eleven after the storm recorded by gabby cowan in kingston ontario canada